As we remain standing in the honor of the Word of God, we do so in the honor of God Himself. As we are to stand before the hoary head, certainly it becomes us to stand before the Lord our God, even to kneel before our Maker. So there's all these postures of which are appropriate, and it is one that in the Bible of old, in Nehemiah and Esther's time, we have a a great precedent set that as they stood all day long and heard the Word of God uh, being preached and being read. So here we are today as we come to the Word this morning from Matthew chapter 18, continuing from even last Lord's Day as we consider the keys of the kingdom. We consider it in a more particular process here in Matthew 18. I'll begin reading at verse 12, going down through verse 22, though The section we'll be focusing on there is verses 15 through 20. Verse 12, Matthew 18. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety and nine and go to the mountains to seek the one that is straying? And if he should find it, assuredly I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the ninety-nine that did not go astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you as a heathen and a tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two or two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven, for where two or three are gathered together in my name. I am there in the midst of them. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. Our gracious Father in heaven, we ask that the Spirit of God would now open up the Scriptures to not only our minds, and to our hearing, but to our hearts. Lord, we ask that you would fall fresh upon us this day with faith to believe these words of yours that you have instructed each of us in your church. That we would not be hearers only, but doers of the word. And we pray that the Spirit of God would teach us and to guide us to convict us of our sins where we need to be convicted, where He would square us up with the process where we shy away from it. We pray that You would bring forth a harvest of spiritual fruit, that as the Word now goes forth, it would go forth in the power of the Spirit. And so we ask that You would bring forth that which You desire that would glorify you as we worship you now in the preaching and in the reception and hearing of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated.
It really is quite sad these days to wake up and to read the paper and the headlines each morning to see the lawlessness in the streets across America. To even hear of governing officials encouraging the lawlessness, defending the lawlessness, all for political reasons. But when governments fail, we experience a lack of peace, unrest, and the deterioration of society. Well, that same principle applies in the church as it does in society. It also applies in our homes. When the government of the church breaks down, then the peace will be jeopardized, relationships will be broken, and God's blessing will be withheld. Last Lord's Day, as we considered the keys of the kingdom from Matthew 16, we now turn to another passage that references the keys of the kingdom in Matthew 18. Exercising the keys of the kingdom last week that we learned was primarily talking about the binding and the loosing of sinners in their sins. And while the passage from last week, Matthew 16, identified, number one, the essential creed of the church, And number two, the certain indestructible nature of the church. And number three, the necessary government of the church all pertains to the keys of the kingdom. This passage this morning identifies the process of that binding and loosing and dealing with sins. The process of the binding and loosing and dealing with sins. With sins. Fifteen years or so ago, when I was down in Atlanta, Georgia, considering the planting of this work up in Centerville, the vision began to be forming and began working toward the coming up here and planting specifically of Heritage Church Centerville. I was consulting with a number of different people, and particularly pastors at that time, and as I began to un veil the the vision that God had laid upon my heart, the very simple vision, really, of planting a church for the glory of Christ and living in a close covenant community, that which I saw as the organic way in which the church ought to be living. I sought a very wise CPC elder who warned me, not against the vision at all. He thought the vision was very uh, inviting and biblical, but he says this, When you have people living in close proximity together, the Lord will need to give you an extra measure of grace for conflict resolution. Biblical conflict resolution is a part of the government of Christ's church. It is absolutely necessary for the long-term success and the health of of Heritage Church, and for that matter, any church, and for even your family, your marriage, and all of your relationships. Biblical conflict resolution. My friend and elder said, you're going to need to be about that. And to do it well. So the topic we're covering this morning is one of the most important messages that I will preach in the entire vision of heritage. 
As we've been working on this vision since January, now we are in August, and it may take the better part of the rest of this year, but I think it's worthy for us. But this is going to be one of the most important messages that I will preach for our health and longevity for heritage. Our faithfulness to this process that is outlined by Christ Himself is absolutely essential, and I cannot overstate it enough. We will all handle conflict with relationships in one of two ways. We will handle them either in the flesh or we'll handle them in the Spirit. If we handle them in the flesh, which is our default nature, and we often just react in this way, rather than handling matters biblically in the Spirit, as the Bible tells us, we're going to actually aggravate problems in relationships rather than bring the healing. Anger and bitterness and resentment is one way that we react in the flesh, that aggravates rather than eliminates the problem. Gossiping and telling others about the problems of our relationship with others rather than going to the one that we've got the problem with is another common way that will just fan the flame and will cause the wildfire and the cancer to just begin to eat up the body of Christ. Gossip is also the pathway to Other things like slander and disturbing the peace in the church and sowing discord among brethren and false witnessing, which creates walls between our relationships and it breaks them down rather than builds them up. When a relational problem occurs between two or more people, the tendency is to find a bit of a support group for our side And to begin rallying support for our cause and where we have been wronged or whatever the case would be. And we tend to then avoid or distance ourselves relationally from another person. That's all sinful, fleshy responses that makes the problem worse and grows it well beyond the problem of which it originally began. Responding in the flesh is our natural and our just kind of go-to tendency of the old man. It is not redemptive in nature. It denies the very gospel we confess with our lips. Rather than grace living that is redemptive and reconciliatory, bringing peace where there was estrangement, bringing together Two, where they were apart, the flesh will work directly in opposition to the gospel principles of forgiveness, love, and reconciliation. But the Bible provides us some very clear directives on how to handle sin in our lives and how to deal with broken relationships where there is that internal distancing, where is that little bit of shunning that's going on, a little bit of anger or bitterness or distrust that has crept in between brethren, the Bible addresses exactly how to deal with that. And this process is an aspect of the government of the church to the extent of even binding and the loosing of one in their sins. That's why it is so important. 
verses 15 through 18, then provides some instructions in dealing with sin in the church. So it says there, Moreover, if a brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. Now, if a brother sins against you and someone offends you, and what I mean by an offense is an actual trespass or sin, it's something that breaks the relationship. Now, we are commanded that love will cover a multitude of transgressions. And certainly, we can love to the extent that we can overlook a lot of faults and sins and problems. But when that transgression or when that sin or that offense is such that it breaks that relationship and we are struggling to find the, the unity of the Spirit and a fellowship with the person, then we are obligated. You just cannot let it go. You cannot handle matters in the flesh. You can't default back to that fleshy response and, and distancing yourself emotionally, internalizing these things, so that then relationally from that person, you have not really fellowship. But you have a biblical obligation to go to that person and discuss the matter. Moreover, your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Now, first of all, when you began to take that first step in this reconciliatory and the spiritual biblical process, we are to do it keeping it very close. Notice it says, between you and him alone. Keep it close. That's really important. That's really important. Keep it between you and the person. No one else needs to know about this. The pastor doesn't need to get involved at this level. Even in this level, this is not judicial at this point. This is just reconciliation. This is the first level of conflict resolution, and it actually is a pretty simple uh, procedure. In fact, not only does the pastor not need to even know about it, I don't even need to know about it. Keith doesn't even need to know about it. Neither does anybody else. Nobody else needs to know. It says, between you and him alone. If you've got a broken relationship with a brother due to sin, then go and address that issue between you and him. The Bible says, alone. Alone. That way you're not spreading the cancer. When in fact, there may not be any cancer there to begin with. Now this doesn't mean that you need to only go one time, and if he doesn't listen to you, that's it. No. You need to carefully distinguish between an unwillingness to listen and a failure to understand or accept your viewpoint. In other words, you may think that a brother offends you, and then therefore you go and you begin talking to him about this transgression. You need to have this dialogue, this conversation. If your brother continues to discuss the matter with you, asking for further evidence, asking for helping you to understand this thing, 
he sees the thing facts differently or he believes a different interpretation of Scripture that bears upon the case and that you're actually wrong in your assessment, those things all have to be taken in consideration. There are so many misunderstandings that are often interpreted as transgression, but you really didn't even have an understanding to begin with. And by simply going to the brother who you think has offended you, oh, there's a whole different narrative or perspective there, and perhaps it just ends right there. Perhaps it wasn't an offense. Perhaps it was something done in ignorance. But as long as there's a reasonable discussion going on, you cannot charge your brother with failure to listen. You won't progress in that conversation. That, pro- that conversation may happen to have to happen over two or three or more meetings together in order to gain understanding. This does take time. It does take some work. It takes some leaning into. But you are obligated to go through this process. Now, when he refuses to listen or he stops listening or he closes his heart off in the matter and that then begins to escalate the the tensions in the relationship, now the next thing is you are to take two or three more. Verse 16, but if he will not hear, take with you two or three more that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. So we didn't get very far in the first round of communications and he, you are seeing that he is refusing to acknowledge or see this transgression. So you're going to take two or three others with you. Now you bring others into the circle, but not until this time. Now these are not, as some would suppose, eyewitnesses to the transgression. We're not in the court. We're not in a judicial ecclesiastical realm at this place. We are just facilitating a conversation. So these two or three people, or these one or two other witnesses, come in as counselors. They're attempting to reconcile two estranged brothers. And what they are witnessing in this situation is the conversation that goes on between the two people whose relationship is broken. They are witnesses to the words spoken, not to the acts or events that have taken place. And we do have to understand at this point in the process that the reference to the witnesses is not judicial but conciliatory. Now these witnesses need to be very careful to be objective and impartial to the situation and not to be prejudiced or biased toward a brother who enlisted them. This is a very important principle, particularly in the environment in which we're now living. Leviticus 19.15 says, You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty. In righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. Now how does that apply? Well, when we are involved in a situation where we are coming in alongside as witnesses to help bring reconciliation in the redemptive purposes of Christ, the Bible obligates us to remain objective. 
We cannot side with one or the other, but we have to judge righteously. It says here that we are not to be even partial to the poor. Now, the poor are ones that we would tend to, to defend. We defend the victim or the abused, or we tend to go in that direction to defend the poor and the helpless and the widow and the orphan. But the Bible says in a judgment like this, be very careful to be objective even for the underdog, if you will. But it also says you should not favor those who are mighty or the rich or be persuaded with bribes or anything that would ruin your objectivity for either side in this case. Witnesses are to remain objective and neutral. Now at this level, that small group of counselors... And they're there more than anything else to do, be faithful to God in seeing the gospel applied in this relationship, which means redemptive, reconciliatory, and at peace with good fellowship restored at the table. See? So we have to be objective. Now, at this level, that small group of counselors hear whether the case has some merit, and if it does, they need to help the offender understand and see the error of his ways. But it may also be something they need to encourage the accuser to drop the case. In this process, there may be room for many areas in seeking forgiveness on both parties. If progress is made at this level, everyone should seek a God-honoring solution that does not compromise biblical principle. And the objective should not be merely the forgiveness of the offense, but true reconciliation between two estranged parties. A true healing in a broken relationship. And that takes time and sometimes a lot of hard work. Let me give you an illustration. I've been involved in a situation where sin between two people had broken the relationship severely. I was appealed to, as a pastor, to escalate the issue. But the offended party was not interested in a restored relationship but only in a confession of sin, admitting he had wronged the other. When I began to inform the party that was offended, if you're not interested in reconciliation and a healing of this broken relationship, then I'm not interested in helping The offended party seemed to be more interested from a personal perspective and from something that he felt that he was wronged and he wanted confession and he wanted repentance by the offender, but he was not interested in healing the relationship. Relational restoration must be at the core of the biblical process or you do not come to the table. That's what 1 Corinthians 11 is all about. 
In fact, in this particular case, there were some sins that the offended party did confess and seek the forgiveness of the offended party, but the offended party would not accept the confession and repentance and therefore would not forgive. In cases like that, it makes it pretty clear where the keys of the kingdom must be exercised with authority because the Bible says, if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. And the keys of the kingdom are then exercised and wielded to bind. In this case, the one who thought he was offended. Make sense? Are you tracking? This is, this, is, this is important stuff. Well, then we get to the place where two or three have gone, and we're not making very good progress in this, and then it tells us then further... If he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses to hear the church, let him be to you as a heathen and a tax collector. Now there's a major change that goes on between this second step and the third step here that we talked about. At this point in the present passage, there is not a lot of detail about what or how all this takes place. But there are other passages that can help direct us in this. And we do know in 1 Corinthians 14, the Scripture says that everything to be, is to be done decently and in order. In the Old Testament, when God desired to speak to the whole assembly of the people, He would do so by summoning the elders the representatives of the people, and he would convey his message to the people through them. Because of some of those references like that, some would take this particular meaning in verse 18 when he says, take it to the church, you're actually bringing it right into the pastoral realm at that point and to the elders. There are some parallel passages in Scripture that can apply here that it's when he's talking about the matter of bringing it to the church, that means to bring it to the elders of the church, who then as representatives would then bring it to the assembly. Deuteronomy 31.28, we see that God assembles the elders together and then conveys to them a message that he wants the entire congregation to receive. I believe in the third step of this process the matter does become judicial in nature. And therefore, the government of the church is now involved. If the unrepentant person does not heed the discipline, then everyone will need to get on board. Everyone, the entire congregation, will need to get on board. In the end, if the offender refuses to hear the church, let him be as a heathen or Gentile, in a Jewish reference, and a publican or a tax collector. Now what is intriguing here is Jesus' characterization here of such an impenitent and unrepentant person. A Gentile was anyone who was not an Israelite. He was outside of the covenant community of Israel. Matthew is given to specifically and primarily a Jewish audience with all of the Jewish characterizations that are brought in. So when he's talking about let him be as a Gentile, 
we have a very clear image of how Jews would view Gentiles. They would be outside of the covenant community. But the second term here is, let him be to you as a tax collector. Let him be to you as a Jew would think about a tax collector in the first century. Tax collectors were often seen as traitors because they were often Jews working for the Roman government. And then they worked for them collecting the Roman taxes upon the Jews. But they were fellow Israelites and they often did so extorting money from their fellow Jews. So not only were they traitors and sellouts to Rome, but they were personally benefiting from this. And how the Jews in society looked at tax collectors who were Jews, well, they, they disdained them. Both of those characteristics, you are to view this person who is then excommunicated out of the church with the characterizations that describe the person, this excommunicated sinner who is put out of the church in terms of what he would be in relative relationship to Israel in this, in this description. And when he made this statement, Jesus was thinking of the church as being the true covenant community of Israel. The binding and loosing comes into context here, which was introduced back in Matthew 16 that we looked at last Lord's Day. And there the binding and loosing was given to the apostles and applied to the, the universal church and even how the church was going to grow in the sphere between Jerusalem and the Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the world. And the keys would be exercised to loose those different spheres as we traced Peter through Acts and seeing that. But here, however, the binding and the loosing is given to the church as a local entity. Matthew 16, we have a worldwide view of the church, but here we have a local view of the congregation. And each local church has the authority and the duty to exercise the keys of the kingdom if it is properly governed. Someone asked last Lord's Day in the Q&A, and I thought it was a good, good question, about the connection of the keys of the kingdom to elders in the church. Because in Matthew 16, he was specifically speaking to the disciples, the twelve apostles there. But I believe here what we have pertains to the local church, and elders are the ruling officers of the church, and apart from which there is no biblical government of the church. So in the exercise of the keys of the kingdom, which are also inseparably tied to your baptism and the Lord's Supper and all of these things, you have to have the government of the church in order. That does require elders. Now, I want to give you seven important biblical directives. And so I, I put an insert in there this morning. I debated about it or not, but... I did, because I felt like this is so important that I want you, if you have that insert in your um, liturgy, to take it out and follow along, because I'm going to give you seven important biblical directives here that applies these principles, these biblical principles, for just living out this process in your home, 
with your children, children with your parents, husband and wife, and with each other in heritage, and even those outside. And these are essential to resolving relational conflicts with the gospel. The gospel. The gospel of grace. The gospel of Christ who redeems. The gospel which reconciles us together with God and to one another. The gospel which pardons us from our sins. Acknowledges that we're sinners, but pardons our sins nonetheless for what Christ has done. The gospel in washing us clean and restoring us to Christ and to His people. The gospel which is to be lived out in not only word, but also in life and deed. The gospel which then brings in true love and peace and joy. The gospel, that's what we're talking about. What Christ came to do for us as sinners when He died upon the cross to reconcile us to God. The gospel which brings us into the unity of the Holy Spirit around the table to worship God. The gospel by which we can glorify God. The gospel by which we have fellowship with God. The gospel by which we enjoy communion with the saints. The gospel is what we're talking about. How do we live it out? How do we put it into practice? Seven directives which are not suggestions. They're directives. Let's go through them. Directive number one. If you have sinned against another, if you have sinned against another, and you're aware of it, you are required and responsible to take the initiative to go and seek forgiveness. Matthew 5, 23, verse 24. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, that means you were the offender, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. If you sinned against somebody else and there you remember that, or it comes to mind, or the Spirit of God puts that upon your conscience or your mind, you are required and responsible. It means God will hold you accountable to take the initiative and go and seek their forgiveness and reconciliation. Number two. Let's take it from the other aspect. If another sins against you to the extent that that relationship has been broken you are obligated to go to the one who sinned against you and confront him. You are obligated to go to the one who sinned against you and confront him. Again, if your love can't cover the multitude of transgressions, and one way that you know that it can't is because this keeps niggling at you, you begin to be disturbed in your spirit, you can't let it go, and there's just some distancing going on, there's a little bit of relational fellowship that's broke, you've got to go. You've got to go. You're obligated. 
Luke 17, verse 3 and 4. Take heed to yourself if your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. This is where Matthew 18 comes in, the passage before us today. Now, if you choose not to go to your brother and your relationship is broken, you are the new offender in that relationship before God. God will hold you accountable. God will hold you and me accountable for any brokenness in a relationship for which we do not take initiative in seeking peace. As Romans 12 says, you are to seek peace as much as it is able with you. Hebrews says we are to pursue peace with all people apart from which we will not see the kingdom of heaven. Well, what if he doesn't forgive me? Well, if you take the initiative and you do everything you can, if you have sinned against your brother, and it doesn't matter if you sinned against your brother or against a Gentile or against a tax collector, it doesn't matter who you sin against or what the, the fault of the other person is, you own your sins. And if you've sinned against somebody else, you are to go and you are to get that right with that person. Even if the person doesn't accept it, even if he doesn't believe it, but if you did everything you can to seek peace, then God, God acknowledges that. Directive number three. If you are the offender now, and you go to the one that you've offended, directive number three is confess your sins. Confess your sins. Confession means say the same thing about your sin that God says about your sin. Well, that was, a, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm sorry that I told a little fib. You see how we just whitewash that? You see how we soften it? Well, that little fib nailed your Savior to the cross. Well, I'm sorry if I offended you. Don't ever use the word if when you're making a true, genuine confession. If I sinned against you, you've got some more searching to do. You've got some more conversation to have. Find out where you sinned, how you sinned, and call it the same thing that God calls it. I am sorry I have sinned against you. I lied about you. I bore false witness. I, I shared it with somebody else in my frustration. and Therefore, I, I'm guilty of a multitude of transgressions at this moment. And I'm truthfully trying to own up to every 
part of this that I can. I've already gone to those that I have spread the slander and the gossip and asked for their forgiveness, but I need to come to you. Own up to it. Say the same thing that God would say. So God's going with you, and you're going to ask Him to be checking you on this. Lord, was that acceptable? Did I use the word if? Okay, I didn't do that. Did I say everything? Did I whitewash it? Did I soften it? Did I call it less than what it was? Is a little white lie something any less than an outright deception and a work of the devil? Okay, say, say, so God's right there with you. Does he agree with you in your confession? Do the best you can there. I know that we're all going to fall short, but what you want to do is be blatantly, truthfully, and blatantly honest. And don't qualify it. Don't whitewash it. Directive number four. If you're the offender, now number three, you've confessed your sin. But number four, if you're the offender, repent of your sins. Confession and repentance are not the same thing. I've been working with someone recently and the confession is just forthcoming and pouring out, but repentance is just not there. The repentance in the way that the Bible and the New Testament uses the word, it means to change your mind. But in the Old Testament Hebrew, it doesn't mean change your mind, it means change your direction. And I think both of those can be very instructive to you. The word in the Hebrew means to return. I'm walking this way, repent, return. Now sometimes I'm going this way, but in order to return, I've got to change my, oh, I've got to think differently about that. That's, that's wrong. I'm heading in the wrong direction. I've got to completely reverse myself. 180 here. Repentance is owning this to the extent that you are going to turn away your thinking and your behavior against that which you were going in, or the wrong that you have done, or the way of thinking that even was wrong. There is a way of thinking that is sinful. And God calls us to repent of all of this. And this takes admission that you were thinking wrong. You did something wrong. You were heading in the wrong direction that even led you to that wrong. Repent. Confession is one thing, but I see, but yes, I was wrong. I did this, I did this, I did this. Okay, all right. I'm waiting for repentance. Will you change? Qualify, 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 qualify. You've just admitted you were wrong. Will you change that right now? Will you change your mind and the way you're thinking about it? It's all wrong the way you're thinking. Will you change it? Well, well, qualify, qualify, qualify. Justify, justify, justify. Well, I did it because, because, because. Reason, reason, reason. Rational, rational, rational. Confession, but no repentance. Repentance means you're going to own it, change your direction. So, number five, the directive is, if you're the offender, now you need to ask for forgiveness. Do not stop short of asking the other to forgive you of the wrong you have done. I am sorry might come into the vocabulary 
But I am sorry is not a request, it is a statement. And forgiveness is not about merely being sorry. Granting forgiveness is not about hearing somebody being sorry. Forgiveness is a transaction. And when you ask for forgiveness, you are asking them, will you forgive me? I'm sorry. The way I spoke to you was wrong. And I'm deeply hurt that it grieves my Lord. And I've hurt you. Will you forgive me? Will you forgive me? You have to ask a question. And then number six, directive number six, if you are the offended party, and a person comes to you and confesses what he has done, and repents of what he has done by coming. That's, you're going to not be able to judge the heart. You just have to be able to judge based on what he's saying. So you might not even think he's sincere. But if he comes to you seven times in a day for the same thing, you're probably going to be thinking he's not very sincere. I don't, I'm not seeing fruit, meat for repentance, therefore I'm not going to give. That's not your business. That's God's business. Seventy times seven, or really just seventy. I mean, that's just a whole bunch. And it doesn't mean the, on the four hundred and what ninety-first time that it's going to be obsolete. That's not the point Jesus was getting at. But if someone comes to you and they confess their sin, and or you go to them and you confront them, and then they confess their sin, however it works out, ideally you'd meet in the middle, right? And they say, will you forgive me? Then you are to grant that forgiveness liberally, completely. You are to grant forgiveness. Is this a personal matter? Well, not really. It's for the Lord's sake. See, God has already forgiven you of all of your abundant sins. And the very sin that y'all are now uh, uh, confronting is so infinitesimally small compared to the abundance of all God's forgiven you. That's why it's really for the Lord's sake. I mean, what, what, whoever has done against you might be, seem like the biggest sin that you can ever imagine, but it's not in comparison with what you have sinned against your Lord. That's why you can easily forgive, easily forgive, if you have the right God-centered perspective. Ephesians 4.32, And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ forgave you. And for Christ's sake, you can forgive and you will forgive. And yet, always close the loop. If someone has asked forgiveness via email or um, or whatever the case is, and sometimes you have to. Ideally, face-to-face -face is the proper channel, but sometimes you need to express it for lack of any other way. But if you are the one granting forgiveness, always, always, always close the loop. Yes, I forgive you. Never, ever, ever say, oh, that's okay. It's not okay. 
What is going to be okay is when you say, yes, I forgive you. Now it's okay. See, you're not doing this simply as a matter of personal-to-person thing. You're doing this for the sake of God. They have sinned against God, and you're a part of this reconciliatory process of this person getting right with God. That's why you're obligated to go to your brother who sinned against you because it's not just a matter between you and him. It's a matter where he has broken fellowship with God and you're a part of the process and gaining your brother. Not for your sake, but for the Lord's sake. Yes, I forgive you. And what you're actually doing there, when you're asking, to for, asking someone to forgive you and the person grants forgiveness, you're dealing with a sin debt. That's why we pray in the, the, the prayer of the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And so sin is seen as a sin debt of sorts. So these are terms that we can get our minds around. We know what it's like to have a debt. And if you ever had a debt that you is so large you can't pay it off, and someone comes in and pays your debt off in full, what great joy there is in that. And that's what the Lord has done for us. He's paid our debts in full. Now someone has sinned against you, and they have a little debt against you, and they come and ask you to be released from the debt. That's the, that's the imagery. And so you're going to release them. Hey, will you forgive me? Will you clear my debt that I owe you? Certainly, I forgive you. How can I not? For the Lord has forgiven me far much more. Now in doing so, when you forgive somebody of their sin, what you're actually doing in that transaction is you are promising that you will never bring it up again, number one, to the person that you forgive, and number two, to anybody else. Let me say that again. Yes, I forgive you. Now, you're promising not to bring it up again to that person ever again, or to anybody else. As soon as you do, well, you know what that person did against me? You are now the offender. And you need to go. I'm telling you, the more we practice this, the better we get at it, and the more regular it becomes, boy, we'll be humble, loving people. And we'll just recognize there's a lot more sin in our body than we really give ourselves credit for, but yet we'll have to deal with it, and we will deal with it. And that'll be one of the most sanctifying influences in our lives. And pretty soon we don't have this veneer of this facade, this whitewash of, of something of somebody that we're not. We really began to realize something that we already know in living in close community is that everyone here is a sinner. And we're all washed in the blood of the Lamb, so we need to get this right with each other. We can move on. Yeah, I, I, I know He did that. You know, we got that right. We just love and so the love will begin to grow. It will stifle and put away gossip. It'll put away a judgmental spirit. It'll put away self-righteousness. It'll put away criticism. It'll put away the spirit that actually drives you to fear. And you will be liberated in this. You need to practice this to the point where it becomes second nature in your home. 
I've got a lot of good practice at this. And I still have to do a whole lot more. We come to the second directive because we're not finished yet. We're not finished. If you are the offender, after you've gone to the offended, then you've got to finish the process by getting on your knees before God and asking Him to forgive you. The process is not completed until you seek God's forgiveness. That's where this has all been going. It's been going and living out the Gospel. And when you come together to pray, forgive us of our sins, that's how Jesus taught us to pray. But He's assuming that we have forgiven all of our sinners who sinned against us. He's assuming that we've also gotten everything right and we've left there on the altar our gift. We've gone and reconciled and then we come and we can seek His forgiveness. The relationship must be restored horizontally and vertically. One is identified with the other. You are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and strength, and you are to love your neighbors yourself. And how can you love God who you do not see when you do not love your neighbor who you do see? It's all tied together. Now, a breakdown anywhere along this path can escalate the situation to the next level where two or three witnesses are gathered, and eventually if the offender will not heed and confess and repent and seek forgiveness, he will be brought into the judicial realm of the church where the keys will be exercised and could eventually even be excommunicated if he continues in his contumacy. But without this process of biblical conflict resolution and church discipline, the church will lose the gospel. Because the process is essential to everything that pertains to the gospel. John Calvin says, if you don't practice church discipline, the church will eventually become a synagogue of Satan. And how many churches across our land do not practice church discipline for the orthodox creed of the confession of Peter and are, have, and it are today become synagogues of Satan? We can't have that happen here. We have to be about this process no matter how difficult it may be at first. But the more we practice it, the more of the second nature it will become. And it will move our church to be more loving and more understanding of really what God's grace is and how abundant His forgiveness is. And the main enemy that stands against this whole process is not shyness, but pride. So we're obligated, whether we are the offender or the offended, to pursue peace with all people, especially the household of faith, and make sure we're living out the gospel of peace. That's how it's described, the gospel of peace. And so as we look to the Lord for the gospel, as we want to live out the gospel, as He's been gracious to us, certainly we can be gracious to one another. As He's been merciful to us, certainly blessed are those who are merciful. As he was meek, certainly blessed are the meek. And so as we live out forgiveness, because God has so forgiven us, we acknowledge our sin. That's the first part of receiving grace, is acknowledging our sin and fleeing to the cross. And this is just gospel living 
one with another. May God give us grace. Our gracious Father in heaven, we confess that this is contrary to our old fleshy old man. And the process is often resisted in our mind and spirit. But we pray that we would embrace this because you have given us clear instruction and that we would be about the business of confession where we have sinned and forgiveness where we have been wronged and that we would do this for Christ's sake. Lord, we pray you would grow this church in humility and grow us in this forgiveness. Grow us in this process and keep the things that divide this body and the factions apart and away from this body. But may we lean into this reconciliatory, redemptive process that you've given to us in your word. And may you instruct us in the ways of righteousness. We pray that our hearts would be open and our minds would be tender and that we could be taught by the Holy Spirit how important this is that we would put into practice daily. Where we fall short even of this process, Lord, forgive us and help us to help one another in a gentle way. For we know that the gentleness of Christ leads us to repentance. So we pray that each one of us might leave here today with a greater resolve to be faithful with this process for the health of the church, for the glory of Christ, and for the fruit of the Spirit to abound in us all. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.